Welcome, consumed listeners, to another season of the podcast that stokes candid conversations with California eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers. And speaking of stoking, I'm stoked you're here. How California is that? This season, I spoke exclusively with women in the wine industry, and it was a transformative experience on my end. These are smart, accomplished, and dare I say, ballsy people I interviewed from diverse experiences, cultures, and walks of life. Oh, and I chatted with them outdoors to be COVID safe. Don't be surprised if you hear a lawnmower, barking dog, or wind chime in the breeze. This is my backyard. Welcome. I want to say something here about one of my biggest supporters and cheerleaders, Rancho de Onaveros Wines in California's Santa Maria Valley. Vigneron James Onaveros is an example of a man who shares his platform with the women in his life, business, and industry, including me. He wrote a post on Instagram about the all-women crews that work at Rancho de Onaveros, and I wanted to share that with you. He wrote, There's a sense of detail and accuracy that I've always admired and appreciated out of our crew of ladies. The level of detail and care is unmistakably fantastic. In a business where every little detail adds up in the end to something superior, if done well, it truly matters. I'm always impressed and privileged with the results from this excellent team. Many thanks to Ranchos de Onaveros and James for his support of this podcast and the diversity of voices in the wine industry. For more information about Ranchos de Onaveros wines, visit ranchosdeonaveros.com. Many thanks as well to Slow Life Magazine, the publication that puts the people of San Luis Obispo County in the spotlight. For my next food column in the magazine, I'm writing about rogue pizza makers. That's folks who make and sell their artisan pizzas through non-traditional channels, like from their home kitchen. It turns out there's a real trend here on the Central Coast of secret pizza people who use social media to promote and sell their stuff. Check out the next issue of Slow Life Magazine for more information or visit slowlifemagazine.com. How we talk about wine and who makes it is a subject that Heather Danitz thinks about a lot. She's the founder of Craft and Cluster, a photography and social media consulting business located in Santa Barbara County. Heather worked for 10 years in the wine industry, doing everything from techie jobs like compliance and pest management to working harvest, pouring in the tasting room, to managing social media accounts. Today, she has her own business, helping wineries tell their story through photography and social media, as well as a blog and a podcast about wine marketing called the Craft and Cluster Podcast. Listen in as we talk about wine marketing, representation, and why it's important to run away from home at least once. Here's Heather Danitz. Heather Danitz, thank you for meeting up with me and talking about your experience with food and wine. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So I did a little bit of poking around and I see, I mean, you obviously have this craft and and cluster um, website and brand and service. You're doing social media and photography for wineries specifically. Yes, uh, that I started doing that in 2019, actually. So um, this week is actually my two-year anniversary. Of, um, thank you. It's very exciting. <laughs> uh, yeah, starting this business. Um, I have been in the wine industry for over 10 years now. 
and variously in tasting rooms, uh, in cellars, and then also in vineyards. Mm -hmm. And in 2017, I was working for a vineyard management company in Bealton called Coastal Vineyard Care. Mm -hmm. And they asked me to start a social media account for them which I was more than happy to do. It was sounded like a lot of fun. And, uh, and that's kind of how the social media thing started. Um, I had originally, back before I had entered into the wine industry, I had wanted to be a photographer, a photojournalist. Mm-hmm. And so I hadn't, basically I got into the wine industry and then I just didn't touch my camera for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I finally picked it back up again in 2017 and was just so happy with it. And I was having so much fun. It was kind of a way to marry these two things that I had really loved and enjoyed. And I didn't realize that that was something that I could do. And so. <laughs> That's awesome. What What was your training with photography? Did you take classes or what? Yeah. So in 2007, I was going to junior college um, down in Pasadena and I had really, you know, I I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I thought that I wanted to be a photojournalist. And so I decided to take a couple of photography courses. uh, And, you know, so you do when you do beginning photography at a junior college, you start with using analog cameras. So, um, film cameras, and then you graduate into using digital cameras. And so that was my only formal training was taking these two courses at um, Pasadena City College. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered the wine industry and decided to leave art behind and dive into wine and uh, ended up just you know doing my horticulture degree and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. And then uh, once I started working for Coastal Vineyard Care uh, and they asked me to start a social media account for them, I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. And I wanted to only share photos that were high quality and original, um, which meant limiting the use of um, iPhones and instead mm-hmm. focusing on using a digital camera. And so I picked up my camera again. And from there, it was really just... Uh, Reteaching myself, so the the school of Google, yeah, <laughs> um, good old Google, good old Google, um, and then also Skillshare. I um, took a couple of classes on there, and then yeah, and just um, following some photographers that I really liked on Instagram and learning from them. So it's been, I would say, ninety percent self taught um, and about ten percent formal training. Uh, And really everything that I remember from junior college photography classes was, uh, you know, just the basics of like, remember that photography is light and lines and composition. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) so, uh, yeah, so I don't really remember too much of that formal training. Is Pasadena home? Is that where you grew up? Yeah, that's where I grew up. Uh, And my dad is still there. My mom is in a little town called Laverne, which is Mm -hmm. on the eastern end of L.A. County. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah. Like like the University of Laverne? I'm thinking of all the the commercials. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I... um, I legitimately, I uh, grew up or I went to high school right up the street from University of Liver. And so. How funny. <laughs> yeah. And so Pasadena, I mean, that's a 
that's a beautiful when I think of Pasadena, I think of a very um old like there's there's old money there. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate? I I don't I haven't spent a lot of time there, but driving around the homes and the culture and everything feels very um kind of like Montecito in certain ways. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you know, of course, with any city, there are um, parts that are a little bit more affordable than others. Um, yeah. And the I was fortunate to grow up up in a little community called Eaton Canyon, which uh, or Kinaloa Mesa is the community, but it's right next to Eaton Canyon, which is a little hiking trail um, that's between Pasadena and Altadena. Um, and I would definitely say that that community is definitely old money. Um, my grandparents purchased that property, uh, in the seventies and then, um, built the house from scratch and, and then left it to my dad. And so, uh, and it, which is like so bizarre to, to think of because I don't think of myself as coming from a family, like an, you know, old money family. Mm -hmm. But, um, when I, I feel like on paper, it looks like it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. One of those California stories of somebody buying something and not even having a clue how much it would wind up being exactly. worth, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when you talk about falling in love with wine or falling into wine, why did that happen? Did you grow up watching adults drink wine? Yeah. Uh, my grandparents were very much into wine. Um, maybe not as, uh, formal as uh, some other folks who grew up drinking wine, but um, my grandparents liked wine and um, and so they would always have a glass of wine at dinner. And um, eventually, you know, I became curious enough about it that I would ask for wine at dinner and um, they were very gracious about that and taught me about it. Uh, but it wasn't really, I don't think, I don't think of that as my introduction to wine. Mm-hmm. Um, the long story short is that I, my sister was going to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and I would go up and visit her in slow, uh, um, as little sisters do. And, um, I kind of fell in love with the area and I was like, well, I want to live here and I'm not really sure what I want to do. And so I told, you know, I went to my sister and I said, okay, well, what should I do? You know, she's like, well, if you want to go to Cal Poly, here's a catalog, and so um, handed me the Cal Poly catalog and I was flipping through it and got to the very back where uh, it says wine and viticulture. And I was like, mm-hmm. you can do that. That's a thing. <laughs> I didn't know that you could do that. I thought you had to be born into it, right. uh, um, which is such a romanticized notion, I think. Yes. Uh, and so, yeah. And so I was like, well, let's give it a go and see if I like it. And I ended up really, really enjoying it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and Yeah like I said, just fell in love with the whole industry. Uh, and I think it really, you know, I find, I think of myself as quite an artistic slash analytical person, which is a very weird dichotomy. That's a and- wonderful dichotomy. <laughs> it's a very valuable one. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and so I found that, that wine really kind of tickled those two fancies for me. Mm-hmm. So really to me, uh, thinking analytically and scientifically, but also helped me um, help satisfy this need for creativity and, um, and art. Yeah. Uh, Cause I, you know, I really think that wine is, is, is those two things. It's 
you know, it is art and it is science. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And you can go deeper into one than the other, depending on what kind of role you take with, with you know, your hand in making it or marketing it or whatever, growing it. Exactly. You So if you went to Cal Poly and you were wine and vit, did you have a concentration in anything in particular? Well, what's funny is I didn't actually go to Cal Poly. <laughs> oh, yeah. you said you had a horticulture degree. Where did yeah. you get that? Uh, I got it at Oregon State University. Oh. Yeah. So I uh, I wanted to go to Cal Poly uh, and I ended up I ended up taking so many courses at Cuesta College, yeah. um, which is the, the community college in SLO, that I ended up having too many credits. And uh, they were like, you have too many credits. It doesn't look like we're going to be, you know, that we're the ones that educated you. So we can't accept you. And I was like, that's a weird excuse for you. That's the strangest thing I've ever Yeah, I know. I was, I agree. It was very weird. Uh, And so I was like, well, okay, what can I do instead? (laughs) And so I went to Oregon State University uh, instead, which ended up being probably one of the best moves I could make because Mm -hmm. it got me out of this, uh, this community, which, you know, the slow and Santa Barbara County community is fabulous, but, um, there it's, I think can be, uh, pardon the word, but I think it can be a little incestuous here sometimes. Yeah, you don't and- have to ask forgiveness. It totally is. <laughs> if not literally, at least figuratively. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, so, and so I found that um, going to Oregon State University and learning about a different wine region, um, the Willamette Valley, was one of the best moves I could have possibly made uh, sure. because it, it really helped me. It made me branch out and meet new people. And it was just, uh, it was really lovely. Yeah. And tasting so. something different too, because that's a very different style. I love the Willamette Valley. I yes. love it. I mean, I I think living here, I see when people romanticize what it's like to live here. I'm sure I'm doing the exact same thing to Oregon when I see, you know, that that is a beautiful part of the world, um, and actually has seasons. Um, yeah. But yes, the wine is so delicious, and um, yeah, the culture seems great. Yeah, it is a really wonderful place. Um, you know, I am a California girl through and through. I do like my sunshine, so that was yeah. You know, the weather was hard for me to handle, um, mm-hmm. but two and a half years there really did me. It did me good, I think. And I I met some amazing people there. And the wine there, as you say, is incredible. Mm -hmm. And I mean, really, it's I'm I'm very proud of being able to um, be a part of the Oregon wine country. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that it was one of the best things you could do to leave. Um, I, I'm a mom. I have an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old and my husband and I have long conversations sometimes about he wants them to stay close by. We're obviously very premature on this. Okay. (laughs) Really, really premature. But when we're just talking theoretically, he really wants to have the kids stay close by, go to Cal Poly, whatever. And when I was growing up, I was really encouraged to go you know, my parents didn't have much, but they said, wherever you can get in, we'll try to mm-hmm. send you there. And I ended up going um, to the East Coast, and it was the hardest thing ever. Yeah. 
So it's like another planet from California, but it couple things. I mean, I got a great education and I learned how wonderful this area is. Mm-hmm. So I'm. I, it makes me happy to hear when somebody says, you know, I, it's great here, but I got out, um, learned about myself, learned about my area, you know, got to experience amazing things. I think that's absolutely critical. Yeah, it, it really. Yeah, honestly, I, I would encourage anyone who has been kind of in the same place their whole lives to go out and experience, I mean, living in another city, living in another state, and even living in another country, I think Mm -hmm. is extremely valuable because you'll learn about, you know, the, the macro cultures of different countries, but you'll also learn about like micro cultures of different states and different cities because they are different. Um, I mean, living in Oregon and living in California are two very different things. And, uh, and it's really, it's really wonderful to experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you ever, um, do a harvest overseas? No. And, uh, I, I hate to say that I regret it because I don't regret anything that I've done because um, everything that I've done has led me to where I am now. But I I do wish that I had at least experienced one overseas harvest mm-hmm. uh, because, again, I think that I would have learned so much and it would have been so valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I really wish I had, but I sadly have not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, I think that I do have regrets and I, I'm okay with that. I know, I know everybody says just what you said, which is so great. I, I just don't believe that for myself. I have regrets about not studying abroad. Um, but uh, I ended up getting over there one way or another. But as far as regret goes, yeah, I mean, I think if I had gone then I would be grateful for who I was then. You know, I think that Absolutely. Our, our lives have all different kinds of trajectories and we can be happy within this huge sphere of possibility. Um, mm-hmm. But I do so wish I had gone on my college's dime, you know, yeah. to to study abroad. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, of yeah. course, I'm like on my kids. You will study abroad and you Indeed. will, you know, living <laughs> through them, which is also wrong. But um. <laughs> so so you got your horticulture degree and then did you come right back here? Yeah, I did, actually. So, um, I mean, I, I lived there and again, I loved living there, but um, I am. I love my sunshine. And I just fell in love with Santa Barbara wine country. Mm. Um, before I moved to Oregon, I was working for Fox and winery. Oh. Um, I love, yes, they yes. are my absolute favorite people on the planet. Mm-hmm. And what <laughs> a spot, them. what a beautiful yeah. spot. Exactly. They're fabulous people. Um, and they just can't seem to get rid of me either. So I, work, <laughs> I worked for them uh, from 2010 to 2012 and then mm-hmm. um, moved to Oregon, lived there from 2013 to 2015. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I moved back and worked for Foxen again from 2015 to 2017. <laughs> nice. Did you work? So, so you must have worked there when they were still in the sweet little 
tasting room on Fox and Canyon Road, I think, right? Yeah. When I first started working for them, they had just built their new tasting room, I think about a year before I arrived. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so they were doing – and they're, they still are, I mean, not during COVID, but uh, – they have been conducting tastings out of both the the shack, which is their original blacksmith yes. tasting room, uh, and then their new tasting room, which um, I jokingly refer to as the Pinot Palace, <laughs> is um, this beautiful new tasting room and um, winery. And, uh, and so they would do, you know, they'd pour their Bordeaux and Italian wines at the shack, and then they'd pour the Burgundian and Rhone varieties at the new tasting room. Mm. And uh, I think now during the pandemic, they have moved everything over to the new tasting room because they just have a little bit more space there. Whereas, you know, the shack um, is a shack and it's very small and it has its charms, but it it has has its its drawbacks. Exactly. Not, not, um, not the easiest place to socially distance. And so, uh, yeah, so they have been conducting tastings out of their new tasting room Mm -hmm. um, this year. I am, uh, I want to go back a little bit. You talked about the the dichotomy or like the tension between art and science for wine. Mm-hmm. When you were growing up, were you into science? Yeah, uh, it, it, not consciously. Um, mm-hmm. I think about this all the time, actually, <laughs> that uh, I was, you know, when people would ask ask me what my favorite subjects were in school, I would say art and English. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, my dad's an English teacher. And so I just, you know, love love English. But when you look at my report cards, you can actually see that I was getting my best grades in science. (laughs) (laughs) It's like how you identify and how you really are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was so funny because I I had never really thought about it before until um, my parents, you know, we were going, you know, as as we do, once the kids move out, my parents started going through all of our old stuff mm-hmm. and sending me stuff. And my mom was like, uh, hey, have you looked at these report cards, actually? Yeah. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, you know, you you always said that you your favorite subject was art and English, but uh, your report cards tell a very different story. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I really, I actually really did love science. Um, I just unconsciously loved it and, uh, and, or subconsciously loved, I should say. And, uh, when I got into college and I kind of started embracing that a little bit more, um, I did find that, you know, I really loved the puzzles of organic chemistry Mm. and, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed horticulture. I mean, everything that I needed to do to get my degree, I really loved every single subject. It was very, fascinating for me and quite mm-hmm. the puzzle. And yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And you told me um, offline that you were into heavy metal when you were a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That was so funny. I, I I'm have... picturing this like science loving mega death <laughs> listening. <laughs> Yeah. Is that an have, accurate portrait? <laughs> I I mean a little bit. I I have quite the diverse taste in music. Um yeah. I think it's shocking to people when I'm, you know, I'll, I'll people get in my car and I'll put my, you know, music on shuffle and it it will have 
it'll bounce from like Casey Musgraves mm-hmm. to, you know, Eartha Kitt and, <laughs> and then, you know, and then there'll be Metallica. I think that my taste in metal is quite vanilla though. I yeah. don't, I'm not, um, I, you know, I have certain bands that I really like and enjoy. Um, but there are others that I think are maybe a little too intense for me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, which, uh, just speaks also to the diversity of, of, of metal and, and, you know, rock and roll. So there is a huge yeah. diversity to metal. I didn't know that until I worked in a record store mm-hmm. when there were CDs were still happening and that was how people consume music. We would have, we had like, I think Metallica would actually fall into the regular music section, just, you mm-hmm. know, like generic rock. Yeah. But then I remember exactly where it was, this corner of the store where it was like the names of the bands were so <laughs> vile. I remember one, it was something like Fetus Blowout or something <laughs> Where And we had to move that section eventually because that was an area that was kind of out of view. And Mm -hmm. people, I'm sorry, it was mostly guys. They would come and you could hear them like trying to rip off the magnetic strip that would put off the alarm so they could steal it. And it was like, we got to move it up closer. But I swear, sometimes somebody would come in and be like, I'm looking for fetus blowout. And I'd be like, right this way. Some of the stuff. Oh, it's so bad. So yes, I'm vanilla yes. too. Yes. In terms of what I listen to. Yes. Uh, let's take a quick detour here to talk about another consumed sponsor. Slow Food Co-op's mission is to empower health and well-being in the community by providing quality groceries, local produce, and exceptional customer service. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining non-GMO standards and a variety of organic selections. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit the Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Well, so when you fell back in love or you fell in love with Santa Barbara wine country, is that when you wound up? So you did Foxen, mm-hmm. went off to OSU, came back. Did you start back up with Foxen right away? I mean, you were in the tasting room or were you doing more than that? Yeah. Uh, so I did start up with Foxen right away again. Uh, what I did, so with Oregon State University, I'm not sure how it is with other uh, uh, UCs and, and colleges, but um, – at OSU, we had to do an internship in order to get our degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had already done an internship with Foxen, uh, but of course, you know, that wasn't good enough for OSU. They're like, you need to do another internship. And I'm like, all right, fine, I'll do another internship. And so um, I called up Billy Wathen, who is the co-owner and winemaker for Foxen. And I was like, Billy, will you please take me back? I want to do another internship with you. And he was like, yes, we can't wait. Let's like come back and um, ham it up with us. And so I was like, all right, let's do this. And so, uh, yeah, so I went back and worked Harvest with them in 2015. Uh, And then between – so I I worked seasonally with them. I did three Harvests with them. So I did 2012, 
2015 and then 2016. Mm. Um, And in between those harvests, I was working in the tasting room and also in the shipping department. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, with them, it was mostly uh, seasonal vineyard or winery work and then um, shipping and tasting room. And I, you know, I got this degree in horticulture with the intention of becoming a vineyard manager. Hmm. And so, you know, I finally in 2017, I, you know, went to Billy again and I was like, hey, um, I really want to work in the vineyard. Do you have anything for me? And Foxen is tiny. They have, I mean, they, in terms of cases, they make, you know, 15,000, about 15,000 cases a year, give or take, depending on the vintage. Um, which isn't very big. I know it sounds like a lot, but it's actually not quite, it's not very big. Mm-hmm. Um, and they only own three vineyards total. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, they work, work the land on four to five vineyards, um, depending on who you ask. <laughs> of course. And, um, and so, uh, you know, and so they don't really need a lot of vineyard help. Um, Billy is the the one who kind of calls the shots at all the vineyards, but uh, his and then he has a, a small uh, year round crew, full time crew that is there and works in the vineyard and the winery uh, full time. And uh, and so he was just like, you know, I wish that we had a place for you to work, you know, in the cellar and in the field full time, but we just don't. Mm-hmm. And so he got me into contact with the folks at Coastal Vineyard Care and um, recommended me and was very kind to, to give me that introduction. And uh, and so I reached out to them and I was like, I don't know if you have any positions open, but um, here, here are my accolades. You know, here, here's my, who I've worked for, for, you know, off and on for the last five years. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and they were very awesome. And they said, yeah, we've, you know, we don't have an exact position, but we'll make a position for you. And so they, that's amazing. it was wonderful. It was really, really great. So when I first started working for them, my, (laughs) my job title was very silly. My first job title with them was viticulture generalist because Ah. I, (laughs) I, yeah, I was like, what does that mean? Um, and it was because I worked in three different departments. So Mm. I worked uh, a third of my time with the viticulture technology department. And so that was, uh, so like harvesters I, and all that kind of stuff. Um, that was, it was more, um, downloading powdery mildew data oh, gotcha. from the weather stations. Yeah. And so I would go out to the vineyards, uh, and download powdery mildew, uh, or download, um, the weather station report. And then mm-hmm. I would come back to the office and compile that into powdery mildew data, Um, and then we would, a third of my time was with the pest control department. And so Mm -hmm. I was just an assistant pest scout. Um, so I would go out and into the vineyards and, you know, count, you know, how many insects I'm seeing and things like that. And, uh, and finding, you know, if if we had some powdery mildew pressure, I would log that, Mm -hmm. uh, putting up yellow jacket traps. That was a, a huge part of my job in the, in the summer. It was not fun. Um, <laughs> and then the other third of my time was spent in the grape sales department. And so mm-hmm. I would, um, I would, dur- this was mostly during harvest is I would uh, make sure that the 
grapes were getting on the right trucks to go to the right vineyards and um, just making sure that everything was organized for um, transportation. Which when it's uh, coming hot and heavy, it's like, I'm sure, a real job. Yes. Yeah. It was, um, they put me in charge of a couple of our more complicated vineyard ranches that um, have several, you know, over 10 grape varieties. And then of mm-hmm. course, the, you know, several clones within those grape varieties. And so it was um, quite the quite the job to organize that and make sure, you know, the right clone from the Pinot Noir is going uh, to the right winery when right. there's two wineries that are harvesting their fruit the same night and um, their rows are right next to each other. So it was um, it was quite the job. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, so I did that for the first year. And then they promoted me to compliance manager where I would help them with the uh, sustainability um, recommendations. So I would help the few vineyards that we had certified sustainable. I would help them with their certifications. Right. As well as the organic certifications, um, among a lot of other, um, <laughs> you know, data collecting jobs. That yeah, you really compliance. Are. Yeah, I did. Um, you are Jack a generalist. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Well, and it all sounds so technical, which thank God there are people doing that technical work. Um, but now what you do strikes me as so on the art side of, mm-hmm. of everything. So yeah. now from what I can tell, you really, um, well, and I haven't even mentioned that you have a brand new podcast. And <laughs> and in that, you are talking to people specifically about how they market and brand and promote their wine. Yeah. Um, and something I really respect about what you're doing is, um, I was reading on the About page for Craft and Cluster, like, you know, there's so many shots of winemakers in their vineyard um, where their hair is perfect and where the sun's setting behind them and they've got their nose in the glass and blah, blah, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Um, which, you know, those shots are great. Nothing against anybody who's done those. Um, but what I like about what you're doing is you are showing the gritty underbelly of what it's like to make wine. And you are in a, uh, an especially unique position to know what that is, to know what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, of course I, I do occasionally do those, you know, the perfectly coiffed hair, you know, in the middle of the vineyard, uh, photos, uh, because they are necessary sometimes, mm-hmm. but yeah, where, what really lights me up is showing the authentic story of wine because, you know, yeah, we often romanticize wine and, and it is a very, you know, it is, it's easy to romanticize it. It is a very wonderful and beautiful product Mm -hmm. but it is also the the process of getting that wine from grape to glass is extremely dirty Mm -hmm. it is so dirty and it is hard work and is often very thankless and I wanted to make it my mission to share those unique stories and those those authentic stories of what it what it really takes to Mm -hmm. to get the wine um front, you know, into the hands of people who love wine. Mm-hmm. And, and I found that not a lot of people were telling those stories. And I found that extremely frustrating because when I go wine tasting or when I am enjoying a producer, 
of wine, I want to know who it was that, you know, made it. I don't care. I mean, I care about the wine itself. I care if it's good, uh, Mm -hmm. but that to me is very subjective. But I really, what I really, really care about is the story behind it. And, and not many people tell that story. And it's, it's, uh, it's one, it's heartbreaking because there are some incredible people out there who have really remarkable stories and those stories deserve to be told. Yeah. Uh, and so that was something that, you know, if I were to define my why and, you know, why I do this and, and all that, it, it would be because people, these winemakers, these producers, they deserve to have their stories told. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And so, um, the way that I like to do that is really, uh, you know, I, I call it artistic journalism. It's um, <laughs> it's basically just following people around, doing what they would normally be doing if I wasn't there, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that also puts me in a unique position to capture true stories because eventually, I mean, I, they won't totally forget that I'm there because I'm this like you know body that's in this place that I'm not supposed to be you know with a lens yeah. <laughs> with, a, with a gigantic lens pointing straight at them um but they eventually become a little bit more comfortable with me there mm-hmm. and start showing me their true personalities and because of my history in the wine industry I'm able to ask the pointed questions, ask the questions that they really want to answer and not the like, oh, what's, you know, what's your philosophy behind this wine? I'm like, well, how hard was this vintage for you? Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Tell me the struggles that you're having. Tell me the, you know, tell me the thing that you're most excited about. And watching their faces light up as they talk about this thing, you know, every person who's in the wine industry likes to be there. And if they don't want to be there, they wouldn't be there because as I said, it's a very thankless job. And so, um, so really capturing what lights people up is, is just something that lights me up, makes me very happy. Yeah. Um, when I started this podcast, I really had to ask myself, why am I doing this? It's such a bizarre concept to Mm -hmm. talk to people who (laughs) eat and drink and make things that we eat and drink. Um, And especially with a focus on the Central Coast. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I was thinking about it more and more, it's actually a really great subject because like you, you like to follow people around. You like to see how they go about their day. You like to ask them the hard questions. We don't do that with, say, like um, like a lab scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't do that with, say, um, I love my husband to pieces, but I'm not going to follow him around as he's coding things in right. his office. <laughs> so we have a we're drawn to the specific occupation, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And it's tricky because I we don't want to romanticize it. It's a very real dirty, like you say, you know, down and dirty kind of job. So much of it is filthy. Mm-hmm. Um, not that the wine is filthy, but the work of it is, you know, you're yeah. submerged in fluids. And yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I wonder if the public, those who are not involved in wine at all, mm-hmm. if they want it to stay romantic. I'm not challenging you at all. Yeah. I just wonder if they almost want it to be like, 
You know, the people who come out for their honeymoon and they they don't want to go to the urban wine tasting spots. They want to see the fields and they want to wear the white dress and they want to believe that the winemakers just got this romantic life. I think the people that you and I are talking to mm-hmm. are people who live it and who and who know what how hard it is and um, who appreciate the dirt. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. And that's a great question. Because, you know, when I first got into the wine industry, I heavily romanticized it. And, uh, Same. and it, yeah. And, and once, uh, once I spent enough time in it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is actually really dirty and this is really wild. But I think it almost, it endeared me more to it. And so I think that the average consumer, they don't know that they want to know these things until uh. they know these things. So we're, you know, they, they come out and, you know, they get to wear their, you know, wide brim hat and their, their sundress and, you know, experience the like swirling the rosé at sunset, you know, and all that. Mm-hmm. And that's an experience that they get to live. But once they get here and they start seeing those behind the scenes photos or maybe they get taken into the the barrel room for a tour mm-hmm. and they actually see what it takes to make this product I think it gives them a deeper appreciation for it mm-hmm. and it helps bring it it helps humanize it a little bit more so mm-hmm. there's no reason it can't still be romantic to anyone and I you know and I admit that I still romanticize it I still sure. um you know it's part of my job is to think critically about the consumer and understand what they want to see. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we can still make it look beautiful whilst while telling an authentic and true story of of what what it's really taking. So, I, you know, I I think that yeah, a lot of consumers they don't know what they want until we show them what they want. I so, love that. <laughs> That's great. I mean, that's really great. And also what you're doing in in so doing, you're appealing to a new kind of a consumer. Also, there are those out there, I think, particularly young, young buyers mm-hmm. want to see the dirty. They want to see the real thing. Um, so you attract this new wine lover. And also in your work, you do cover a lot of younger folks in the wine industry. Mm-hmm. Um you also cover a lot of diverse folks in the wine industry. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm fortunate to be to have been welcomed into this little group here on the Central Coast called Women in Wine on the Central <laughs> Coast, and uh, and many of my friends. You know, of course, I am a millennial, and so I tend to keep company with other millennials. And so I have this unique perspective of uh, seeing these young up and coming women who are absolutely killing it at mm-hmm. um, at making wine and just being in the wine industry. I have um, a few friends who are who aren't necessarily on the winemaking side, but are on the administration side, which is just as important. Critical. Um, and yeah. yeah. And so seeing seeing these women succeed is um just fills me up for mm-hmm. sure. And and then of course on you know on you can't really talk about wine without uh, without talking about diversity. And it's something that needs to be talked about more. Uh, 
it's it's absolutely ridiculous that there isn't enough representation. I mean, just talking solely um, from a woman's perspective, you know, the fact that there aren't, you know, we aren't, we aren't equivalent with men. The fact, like, this is something I talk about all the time and it fires me up. Mm-hmm. Yes, I can <laughs> um, see. I can already, I feel you like, just give me a chance to say it. Go ahead. Yes. yes. So, you know, we have this sort of dubious honor in Santa Barbara wine country of being one of the wine regions with the most female winemakers per capita than really? yes. Um, and I don't know if that's in the world. I'd have to look at the data. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is certainly within California. We have one, we are one of the most diverse wine regions in terms of men to women. Okay. Um, and that percentage is still very low. Mm-hmm. And so, the fact that that is a point of pride for us here is is actually extremely heartbreaking mm-hmm. that that we're you know oh we have the most women winemakers per capita than any other wine region like that shouldn't be a thing <laughs> like that mm-hmm. shouldn't be a thing at all and and then when you drill down to how many black folks are in wine how many indigenous folks are in wine, which is a fraction of a fraction, how many people of color are in wine, it, it becomes, the story becomes even more heartbreaking Mm -hmm. and really makes me angry. Really. Yeah. It just, um, it, it's just, it sucks. (laughs) It shouldn't be that way. (laughs) In your own words. And for, I mean, obviously we can only talk about what we've seen and experienced, but in your own words, why would you say those numbers are so low? Yeah, it's uh what are the barriers I, to entry? Yeah. Yes. Uh you know, I I honestly I don't know why the the numbers are so low. At, at least um again speaking from from a woman's point of view, if you look at how many women are graduating from the Cal Poly um wine and viticulture program, that percentage is actually higher than men graduating. It is, yep. And and so it really shouldn't be low women in leadership to high men in leadership. It shouldn't be that way because just statistically looking at how many people are graduating, I mean, even at OSU, I would say half, if not more than half of my classes were full of women. Mm -hmm. And so where the hell are they? And I think in your numbers, I don't mean to grill you on this, but in in your numbers, in your percentage, Mm -hmm. is that counting just on the winemaking side or is that counting like admin, compliance, all that kind of thing? Yeah. um, That to me is it's it's the uh, it's just the winemaking side. Yeah. Um, And so I was actually looking at the uh, Wine Business Monthly. They do an annual. their big study. Yeah, exactly. And so I was looking at the study from 2020, and this is the first year that they have included data of um, gender data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the admin side is um, populated by mostly women. Yeah. Uh, whereas, again, we are seeing smaller percentages. I don't have it in front of me. And so no, I, okay. I I'm, this is all based off of memory, but, yeah. um, you know, and then even looking, I, re- I remember was texting with one of my friends and I was like, have you seen the CEO data? Mm. It's this, this, it's not even half. Mm-hmm. 
And that's mm-hmm. wrong. You know, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, of course the tasting room managers, the wine club managers yeah. are dominated by women. Marketing um, directors. Yes, exactly. Marketing mm-hmm. directors are mostly women. Um, but even, even that in some places, the marketing directors in certain wine regions were, um, almost equal men and women. And yeah, which um, that's a good thing, right? We want to, of course, see that diversity and Mm -hmm. that equality. But uh, yeah, the, I mean, gosh, I wish I had it in front of me because the Mm -hmm. the numbers are stark. And, um, and, and again, that is just between men and women. That is not including the data of um, black people indigenous people and mm-hmm. um, people of color. It's not yeah. including any of that data. And that, uh, I, I mean, it's so hard to find that, that data. Yeah. It's like nobody is, cal- uh, nobody is, is, um, gathering that information. Well, the fact that-, that wine business <laughs> monthly only started looking at gender this past year goes to show that there was no demand for it. Mm-hmm. And maybe why there was no demand for it is it was so heavily dominated by males mm-hmm. yeah. that, like, why why are we looking into gender? You know, it's it's yeah. interesting to see even the fact that they're only just now beginning to report that is yeah. eye-opening. Yeah. Also, I think, I you know, I witnessed this past weekend, I, I have a son and a daughter, and I was watching my daughter, I don't want to, like, out her, um, <laughs> but she's a really engaged kid. She's Mm -hmm. really, if people are playing in the mud, she's playing in the mud. If people are making something, she's making something. Um, She's really engaged. And this past weekend, I noticed that she was kind of hanging back and um, boys were playing and she was sort of like, she was with another girl and they were observing. Mm -hmm. And I all of a sudden saw that thing that I was dreading. And, mm-hmm. and that's not to say it will always be like this, but I saw it for the first time where she was not in the pit doing the stuff. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about wine, I mean, we've said it's, you know, it's dirty, it's gritty, it's physically difficult. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder if that isn't a learned pattern where, you know, it's just not common to see women getting dirty, physical labor, all of that not engaging in and participating deeply with something we're, we're making something. Yeah. Yeah. I, gosh, it's, yeah. (laughs) I mean, the, one of the arguments I think that, or one of the stories I think that men like to tell themselves, um, and this is a generalization, of course. Uh, not all men tell them themselves. All the men story. listeners are like, yeah. What? They're like, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think I think uh, a story that that some men like to tell themselves is that women, you know, because wine is such a physical job, mm-hmm. it is, you know, women just aren't as strong as men, mm-hmm. and so they can't do it. But I would like to um, debunk that myth immediately with a story about Wynn Solomon, who is the winemaker for Peak Ranch Wines. Uh, She's phenomenal, by the way. Anyone who hasn't had an opportunity to taste the wine that she is working on, please do yourself a favor. It is fabulous. She is one of the most intuitive winemakers I have ever met. Mm -hmm. And it's it's, it's an absolute joy to watch her. But I digress. This last harvest in 2020, she had an all-female crew. 
mm-hmm. at the winery. No men were helping her. And they did everything just fine by themselves. Right. Just as fast. Just, just as, as efficiently. Fast, exactly. And I would argue even more efficiently because, you know, in some cases, yes, uh, some women aren't as strong as some men. Mm-hmm. And and so we often have to think critically about how we're going to approach uh, a process that tends to require a little bit more physical strength. Yeah. Yeah. And we have adapted and overcome mm-hmm. by making, you know, working smarter, not harder. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, and so I, I want to debunk that myth because I, it's just not true. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it really, yeah, it's, that's all I have to say about that. It's just yep. not true. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, we really, we need to stop telling that story that mm-hmm. women can't do things because, you know, it requires physical strength. Right. Uh, it's, Yeah. I mean, I don't know what else to say. It's just no. Yeah. I, and I've seen, I have seen women like moving hoses and just like such difficult work. I've seen big bodies do it. I've seen little bodies do it. I've mm-hmm. seen middle of the road. But I mean, just all of those theories that we have about who is right for that job mm-hmm. are so old and calcified. It's like we just believe it without questioning it. And I really applaud you for being somebody. I I think that your marriage of the analytical and the artistic are actually pretty critical for you being an activist in that way, Um, because you know the science side, but you also have the skills to be able to bring that to everybody's ears and eyes. Um, And I just think it's great. And um, yeah, keep it up. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, I ask everybody um, about their final meal if they knew they were going mm. to die. I'm sorry, don't ask everybody this. I ask every <laughs> guest this. Um, it's not the first thing I ask when I meet somebody. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow and you wanted to celebrate, what would you eat and who would you mm. eat it with? Oh, and drinks are, of course, part of that. Yes, sure. Oh, that is such a great question. Um I would say probably I would definitely have it like a grilled artichoke with lemon butter. This is my <laughs> I love artichokes oh, so much. They're fantastic. so good. Uh I could yeah, I swear I could eat one for the rest of my life. Um There's nothing in the world like an artichoke. That's the only thing like that. It's so good. Yeah, it's I don't know. I just love it so much. Just yeah. so delicious. Um and then Oh gosh, I don't know in terms of maybe um like a steelhead trout kind of with a dry rub on it, like Cajun dry rub. So a little spicy, but not overly spicy. Yeah. And uh and then I'd have a Gruner Veltliner mm-hmm. with it. Uh right now that's I think my my wine of choice. Um, I feel like anytime anyone asks me what I'm drinking, it's Gruner Veltliner. And so it great. Is, yeah. And it's, I think it's one of the, I was just having this conversation with someone else. Um, I think it's one of the only wines that can handle artichokes. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. they're, you know, artichokes are notoriously difficult to pair with wine, yeah. but I think that Gruner Veltliner is, is one of the only wines that can really stand up to, uh, that flavor profile of a, of an artichoke. And can there you go. It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a pairing to try for sure. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's fabulous. Yeah. I would I think that's it. And who would you have it with? Oh, my husband, of course. <laughs> yes, Good. he is uh the most wonderful person on the planet. And mm-hmm. I am not being dramatic or self-deprecating when I say that he is 100% better than me as a person. <laughs> 100%. 100%. 100%. Yes. <laughs> All right. That, that might be an overstating <laughs> it, but he is, he is definitely, um, he has definitely made me a better person. And Aww. so I definitely want to spend any last moment I have with him. Awesome. Good. Well, hopefully that's very far away. Yes. <laughs> Heather, thank you for taking time out of your Monday morning to talk to me. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. It's so fun to talk to you. Listeners, I hope you've learned something, felt something, or been pushed to taste something new during this episode. I'm getting a buzz just thinking about it. If you want to learn more about Consumed or any of my guests, go to letsgetconsumed.com. Very special thanks to my stalwart editor, Chris Lambert, who helps me out when he's not working on his own project, the wildly popular true crime podcast, Your Own Backyard, about the disappearance of Cal Poly student Kristen Smart. There's new movement in that story, by the way, so look the podcast up right now. Also, if you like Consumed and think more people should hear it, please review the podcast wherever you like to listen. That always gives me a thrill. Okay, until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis.